This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Amen. Good morning, church family. I hope that you sense God's presence here in this place. This place is a holy place, not because of the carpet or the paint, but because the Holy Spirit is here. God is here, and he has gathered his people, and uh, this is the sanctuary of the Lord because he is with us. Amen. Welcome to Windsor Road. If this is your first Sunday here at the church, my name is Randy, and uh, I'm the lead minister here at the church. I'm just pleased to worship God with you, and uh, I'm going to be in a place called the Fireside Room and would love to have a little bit of conversation time with you uh, after our services, our fireside room is through the glass doors and to the right. And if you have uh, prayer requests, if you have encouragements, we want to hear both. And so my wife, Sarah, and I will be in the fireside room. Our staff and elders will be there as well, too. And uh, we would just love to spend a little bit of time with you. So, so good to be together here today. And if you are new, uh, let us know you're here. We've got registration cards uh, if you want to pick one up in the back, or if you can let us know on your app. We also pray in our staff meetings Tuesday mornings at 8.30 and in our elders meetings as well. So we want to know, um, we want to know what's on your heart. And hope that you can stay uh, for our uh, Summerfest picnic, which is after second service. So uh, if you don't have lunch plans yet uh, uh, and you want to stay for lunch, we would be happy to, we'd be great to have some fellowship time together here and would enjoy that as well. Our scripture reading today for the teaching time is taken from the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 90. If you want to take your Bibles and just kind of open it up right about to the middle, you should find the book of Psalms and then go to Psalm chapter 90, Psalm chapter 90. And I'm going to read, we're going to look at the entire chapter, but I'm going to read uh, for our scripture reading verses 10 through 14, Psalm 90, verses 10 through 14. And I believe those verses will be up on the screen as well. Um, I, I want to put a tag on this scripture, the mortal body, the mortal body, consider the reality of your mortality. Say that with me. Consider the reality of your mortality. Amen. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. This is the word of God. So I once heard a story about a sailor who was new to the ship and to the crew. 
And the sailor became confused about where the ship was heading. It was night, and the ship's movements just didn't square with his training to use the North Star as a fixed reference point. So this confused sailor went to the captain and said, Captain, sir, where are we going? And the captain replied, well, sailor, we do things a little differently around here. You see that lantern that's hanging there on the ship's bow? That's our guiding light. That's how we're making our way across the sea. And that's the end of my little story. But you probably are ahead of me, aren't you? Human life is like a ship. And guiding a ship by a reference point on the ship is a recipe for being adrift. It will set the ship on a voyage to nowhere. To get to where we're meant to go, we must have a reference point outside of both ourselves and our world. We need a North Star. Now, our church's belief is that the Bible is our North Star. It's the North Star. It is not constructed truth. It is revealed truth. The psalmist says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It exists outside ourselves, independent of ourselves. And this is so important, especially as we have been thinking about human embodiment. We have been on a series here about aspects of the human body. What does the Bible have to say about the human body? And so we have explored different aspects. We've talked about the created body, the gendered body, your unique body. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You're a social body. You are created for relationships. We've talked about the suffering body, the disabled body, We've talked about the disciplined body, and today we are going to consider the mortal body. The mortal body. What does the Bible have to say about our mortality? And thus our text, Lord, teach me to number my days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Teach me to number my days. Well, today's my little granddaughter's seventh birthday. Yeah, Miss Audrey. We're going to have a party later. We're going to open presents. For dinner tonight, she wants pancakes and sausage. Amen. She's going to get it. And then we're going to have some non-dairy cake and then we're going to have some non-dairy ice cream because she can't really do dairy. Miss Audrey was born six weeks premature. You'd never know that now. She's got a sensitive little spirit. She likes to play and swim. If Psalm 90 applies to her, her life is about 10% lived. 
I mean, feels like she was just born yesterday. I blinked, and now she's seven. Hmm? And from her perspective, time crawls, especially when she has to wait and wait for dessert, and wait to open her gifts, wait to go play outside, waiting. Oh, time crawls. Audrey and I have a different perspective about time. We experience time differently. If what Moses says in Psalm 90 applies to me, my life is 75% done. Wow. I got about a quarter of a tank of gas left. Wow. Lord, teach us to number our days. Teach me to consider the reality of my mortality. The clock is ticking. Time is passing. Some of you all have been to England. You visited the UK. Maybe you've been to Cambridge. If you went to Cambridge, did you get to see the, it's, it's a site, it's a place, it's, it's called the Corpus Clock. It's called the Grasshopper Clock. Yeah. There it is on the side of the screen there. It's a, it's, it's, it's a real clock. It was unveiled in 2008. It's gold-plated, stainless steel, no hands or numbers. It's three, got three concentric circles you can see there. The outer ring measures the seconds, and the middle ring measures the minutes, and the inner ring measures the, the, the hours. And, and at, you see the top there? It's this creepy-looking locust. Really creeping thing. And, and, and so with each passing second, can we see it work here, Neil? Let's take a look at that thing. Take a look at this. This is interesting. Is it, is it moving? Yeah, there it is. Look at that. Is that eerie or what? And watch him blink. He's going to blink here in just a second here. Maybe. There you go. Isn't that something? Man. Ooh. There's a spooky grinding sound. That, you know, just never stops. And, and, and those eyelids, you know, blink every now and then like it's satisfied. With each passing second, the creature eats time. It's a, it's, a, it's a public work of art. And the message is this. Time is not on your side. Time will eat every second of your life. And when one second is gone, the, 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 that locust is salivating for the next. And, and, and you know what's of interest to me is, uh, I, you couldn't see this with the screen, but at the base of the clock is etched 1 John chapter 2, verse 17. The world and its desires are passing away. That's true. We're always asking, what time is it? You know, we got watches and cell phones, and I'm looking at three clocks right here, one on each side of the screen and one in the middle. And What time is it? At some point, though, the question changes, what time is it, to a deeper, more personal question. And it's a question that makes a demand of us. And it's this, what am I doing with my time? Do I have clarity concerning the reality of my mortality? 
And this is where Psalm 90 helps. And church, let me just say this. And if you're feeling new here to the church, you may be thinking, this is heavier than what I thought. I totally understand why you might think that. But consider this, consider this. Would you not agree with me if I said that our culture really as a whole tends to want to repress the reality of our mortality? We, we do. We kind of just want to pretend. We know kind of intellectually that we're not going to live forever, but yet it just doesn't really, we don't, it really doesn't connect with us in a relevant basis until some, some disaster hits. And then it's like, well, what, what was that all about? Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, see. We, we tend to want to repress the reality of our mortality, and yet at the same time, we just really, you know, we really get into these shows like The Walking Dead or, you know, or even like CSI is usually, you know, something disastrous happens and someone dies and then they've got to figure it out. And, or even when we see a, a show uh, like the 007 James Bond series, I don't know how many bad guys James Bond kills. It's almost like a video game, isn't it? See, we kind of tend to make it more fantastical, but here's the reality of our mortality. Psalm chapter 90 tells us. And, and we tend to kind of just want to live as if it's going to happen to someone else and not us. And what Moses is pleading with us, pleading with us, saying, consider the reality of your mortality. To live life as if death isn't reality, that's not wise. Now, do you want to be wise? Do you want to be Bible wise? Well, this is where Moses helps us. Moses helps us, helps the, the Bible wise seeker, and he helps us with Psalm chapter 90. Now, Psalm chapter 90 can be divided into three parts. It's, I can summarize it in three words. God, us, pray. That's pretty simple. God, that's verses 1 and 2 we'll look at. Us, verses 3 through 11. And then pray about that, verses 12 through 17. Let's begin with God. God. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. So, so Psalm 90 is attributed to Moses, which would make it one of the oldest psalms in Scripture. And we know from the first five books of the Bible that Moses' life lasted 120 years. It can be divided into three 40-year components. The first 40 years, Moses was a prince in Egypt, reared in the royal court of Pharaoh. But then Moses became a fugitive. He fled Egypt for the Midian Desert where he was a shepherd for another 40 years. Now, what we would consider the prime career years. Moses spent tending sheep, and he didn't need a clock, did he? I mean, at, at sunrise, he was with his sheep. At sunset, he went to, he went to sleep. It, it was with his sheep. It was like that every day for 40 years until he was 80. When God called Moses to lead Israel from Egyptian slavery, and after 10 plagues after the miracle of the Red Sea 
After the giving of the law, Israel was about to enter the land of promise when they failed to trust God. And for the next 40 years, they became wanderers. And only the children under the age of 20 actually entered the land of promise. And so an entire generation died in the wilderness before Israel entered the land. And, And even Moses was excluded from entering the land of promise due to a leadership failure on his part. And so Psalm 90 comes from someone in the sunset years of their life who had to make peace with the fact that he would die with unfulfilled dreams in this life. That's who you're hearing from. And yet when Moses begins this psalm, he does not identify as Moses, prophet of Israel, or Moses, shepherd of Midian, or Moses, prince of Egypt. How does he identify himself? Man of God. Wow. Man of God. Moses says, that's my identity. That's, if you need to call me a title, Moses says, just say man of God. Moses knew God. Moses was possessed by God, and only a man possessed by God could write a prayer like this. This man loved God. And the more time Moses spent with God, the more he wanted God. At one point in his life, he said, God, show me your glory. And Psalm 90 begins with God, a soaring declaration of who God is. Verse 1, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. You, God. You've been our dwelling place. Now, why did he say that? Well, Israel is no longer in Egypt. They're they're not in the land of promise, though. So they're in that in-between space. They're in the wilderness. Israel's homeless. They have the tabernacle, this portable sanctuary, reminding God's people that God himself is their dwelling place. Moses says, Lord, you are our residence. You are our shelter. You protect us. Israel has no cities. They have no borders. They have no capital. They have no national boundaries. Yet, God, we're protected because you protect us. We're not yet in the land of promise, but we're at home because you are our home. You are our refuge. You are our roof. Now, it's one thing to say that and still have a house to go to after church. But when you are homeless, when you have no fixed address, no mailbox, no house key, when you don't get a mortgage or power bill, to say, God, you have been my dwelling place, that's a whole nother, nother level, and that's exactly where Israel is. And by the way, honestly, that's the way it is with us too, because a 100 years from now, none of us are going to be living in the homes We have now. None of us will. Someone else will, or they won't be there. Someone will tear them down and build another house. Happens all the time, doesn't it? Hmm. So no matter what or where, God is our refuge, and you can trust him. You can trust him. Now listen. 
Psalm 90 is where it is in the Bible specifically, strategically. You see, Psalm 90 follows Psalm 89 and 88, and the themes of those psalms are really gloomy, really gloomy. You think today's heavy, you'd be glad we didn't do Psalm 88 and 89. You're welcome. It's really gloomy. Psalms 88 and 89 describe an era in Israel's history that was just uh, hurting due to poor national leadership. And the placement of Psalm 90 is as if to say, you know what, you know, let's go back before the days of Israel's monarchy. Let's go back before King David and before Solomon, before there was an Israel, before there was an Abraham, before there was Adam and Eve. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Nations come and go. God remains. God is king. God is eternal. We are not. God is sovereign. We are not. God is all-powerful. We are not. God made everything. We did not. We are transient. We are mortal. We are weak. We are weak. So no matter what's going on in our world, be it Springfield or Washington or Wall Street, be it bear market or bull market, be it inflation, recession, or any global condition, seek your refuge in God. And why? Because he is the everlasting creator. Verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth, or you ever had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. This is who we're dealing with. which is really important than when we consider ourselves. And that's verses 3 through 11. The everlasting God, the one who created the heavens and the earth, this God is the God who says in verse 3, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of Adam. Return. You see that? Can, can you hear Genesis chapter 3, verse 19? By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Genesis three nineteen. In one compact phrase, verse 3, in one compact phrase, Moses reminds us why we are mortal. And it's the word sin. In Genesis 1 and 2, God's word had been irresistibly obeyed. Irresistible. God would speak and things happened. And God said that it's good. But beginning in Genesis 3, an intruder appears. This reptile intruder whose first words challenge God's sovereignty. Did God actually say? Satan's first words. And then he openly contradicts God's strict warning. 
He openly denies God's truth. You will not surely die. You will not surely die. God said, eat and you will die. Satan said, eat and you will live. And now they had a choice to make. And then don't miss the seduction of the serpent. You can't die. You're, you're too important to die. You're too big to fail. The story of the fall is the story of Adam and Eve believing the lie that they were too big to fail. And catastrophic consequences occurred. Insecurity, culpability, indignity, anxiety, and yes, mortality. Death is a punishment perfectly fitted to the offense. Because death says that we're not at the center of the universe. Death says that we're not indispensable. Death says that we're not too important. Death is payment for services rendered, Romans 6, 26, for the wages of sin is death. Moses is, is pleading with us. Moses is saying, do you realize who you're dealing with? Do you realize who you are compared to who God is? Look at verse 4. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. A watch in the night. What is that? That's That's about four hours. It's the smallest unit of time back then. But to God... The smallest unit of time is a thousand years. So, what is to us an eon is to God like the second hand of his watch. So, so when 2 Peter 3, verse 8 says that to the Lord the day is like a thousand years, he's thinking of this verse right here. Oh, and there's more sobering news. Verses 5 and 6 tell us every tsunami, every hurricane, every flash flood, the destructive forces of nature neutralize any notion of human strength. In verse 6, in verse 6, our lives are as fleeting as the grasses of the Middle Eastern fields, lush and dew-drenched at dawn, but by afternoon they have wilted in the blazing sun. There it is. And here's the point. Don't miss this, please. You don't have enough time to be as significant as you want to be on your own. To be as important as you'd like to be requires more than you have. That's why James 4.14 says, what what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And and then in verses 7 through 11, Moses reminds Israel that in addition to their physical frailty, they are reaping the consequences of spiritual rebellion. They're grumbling and they're complaining. The worship of the golden calf, their lack of faith of God, which led to 40 years in wilderness wandering. Moses is not being morbid, church family. He's just trying to shake us out of denial. 
The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. Because honestly, we bring it on ourselves because we want to be God. We don't want to bear the image of God. He's just trying to wake us up from our spiritual coma. He's trying to tell us how dangerous it is to repress our standing before a holy God. Have you ever spent time with someone who never got over being 16? Someone who's at 46 or 56 or 66, they still try to make it about them. They still try to find significance in themselves. They're self-focused, self-absorbed, narcissistic. They're blind to the very character flaws they point out in other people. Here's what we know about them. They're always running out of time, and history does not speak well of them. God, God has wired us with an intuitive alarm that goes off when you interact with someone who makes it all about themselves. And something inside us says, you know, that, that, you know, something about that's not right. That's something we don't want to emulate. You know, we don't want to marry that person. We don't want to work for that person. We don't want to be with that person. It's almost, it's almost impossible to love someone who makes it all about themselves. Our only hope is God. This is who God is. This is who we are. What next, pastor? Pray. Pray. Verse 12, Lord, teach us to number our days. Now, verse 12 does not say, figure it out on your own. Doesn't say that. You, you can't teach yourself to number your days. Number, numbering your days can't be self-taught. Can't. Can't figure it out on a YouTube video. Can't. And people who try to number their days on their own end up living foolishly. Only God can teach us to number our days. So God, teach, I want to be teachable. Take, will you take me on as your student? Will you accept me into your study? I want to be your student. I want to learn. And what is the learning outcome that Moses says comes as a result of enrolling in God's academy of mortality awareness. What is that learning outcome? Wisdom, you see? Wisdom, wisdom. Not efficiency, but wisdom. Wisdom, and and what is wisdom? Wisdom is when God satisfies me more than life itself. Look at verse 14. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Can you feel what Moses is saying? Oh God, teach me the reality of my mortality so that I will enjoy the loyalty of your love. There it is. That's the big idea right there. Teach me the reality of my mortality so that I will enjoy the loyalty of your love. Teach me the reality of my mortality so that I will enjoy the loyalty of your love. At the heart of Psalm 90 is this paradox. If you want to enjoy life, you better get serious about death. 
Oh God, teach me to truly grasp my mortality so that I will long for your eternity. May my mortality give me a a spiritual hunger for that which truly satisfies me. God, and then give me a vision based on that, a vision about how to work, how to live, how to rest, how to play, how to read, how to have a conversation, how to listen, how how to save money, how to spend money, how to think, how to love, how to laugh, how to grieve, how to lead, how to follow. Oh, God, teach me to appreciate how temporary this world is because when I do, then I'll see that even the worst of life is not forever. Oh, God, teach us with St. Paul that our troubles are light and momentary compared to the eternal weight of glory that you have promised in Christ. Oh, man, pray about that. Verses 12 through 17 contain eight asks, eight asks from a needy man to an everlasting God. Teach us, return to us, have pity on us, Satisfy us, make us glad, show us, establish us, favor us, favor us. Teach us to be satisfied with you in the morning. God, satisfy us in our younger days so that we can rejoice in you all of our days. Oh, man. And do you know what the good news is? God in fact, answered that prayer for Moses. He did. He did. Verse 17 says, literally, let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. And do you know that beauty came in the flesh? Jesus Christ. When the kindness Mercy of God, our Savior, appeared. He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Yes, we are mortal. Flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. When we avoid the truth about death, we avoid the truth about Jesus. And Jesus never promised us so many of the things we want most out of life. What he did promise us, though, was victory over death. You died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And on account of Christ's resurrected life, you will live forever in a new body. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. And do you know Moses got a glimpse of that? He did. Though Moses had unfulfilled dreams in this life, Christ Jesus redeemed those dreams. I know that because I've read Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, an event called the transfiguration. We see a preview of the resurrection. Jesus met on the mountaintop with, who were they? Moses and Elijah. Luke 9, 30 says, And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, 
who appeared in glory, and Jesus spoke of his exodus, departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So Moses did set foot on the promised land. And after Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, he sent his Holy Spirit who endows us with otherworldly wisdom and with Christ's mercy and favor and strength. We can live out the Apostle Paul's words in Ephesians 5, 15 to 17. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Oh, what would would this congregation look like if we gathered weekly and, and then fanned out into the beloved community? We are God aware and we are self-aware. And based on that, we know how to pray. We know how to pray. You want to learn how to pray? Read Psalm 90 this week. Tackle those prayers. Oh, teach me, God. Teach me my mortality so that I will enjoy the loyalty of your love. I'm almost done. But not before I tell you about an article that I read this week. It's titled, Please Don't Say These Things at My Funeral. I read it, and then I personalized it for myself, and I want to pass this along to you. Please don't say these things at my funeral. First, please don't say, Randy was a good man. I do not want my funeral to be a recitation of my moral resume. For one thing, I don't have one. If you want to use the word good... Talk about our good father who made us all his children in Christ. Talk about the good husband that Christ has been to his bride, the church. Don't say, Randy was a good man. Instead, say, our good and merciful God loved this sinful man. Please don't say these things at my funeral. Please don't say, Randy, 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 Randy. I, I don't really want to be the focus of my funeral. I, I, I have not been, we, we've not come here to focus on me. We've come here to focus on the word, and I'm just the messenger. Uh, if anyone's name comes up over and over, let it be the name that is above every name. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. He is the one who's conquered death. He is the one who's, who paid for my sins. He is the one in whose arms I will have died. He is the one whose face I will see. Oh, let me decrease that Christ will increase. Please don't say these things at my funeral. Please don't say, God now has another angel. I'm not an angel. Trust me. Heaven does not strip me of my humanity. And when I am resurrected on the last day, I will be more human than ever before. My my body-soul composite will finally be glorified and freed from sin People don't become angels in heaven any more than they become trees or puppy dogs. The human you are now, you shall be forever. God has enough angels already. 
All he wants more of is children in the place Jesus has prepared for them. Please don't say these things at my funeral. Please don't say, Randy would not want us to weep. Yes, he does. (laughs) I've been here 33 years. What's the matter with you? (laughs) Weep. Wail. When When Lazarus died, Jesus wept. To weep is to not lack faith. It's to acknowledge the sting of death. And death is the last enemy. So weep. But let your weeping be with hope. And remember that in the new heavens and the new earth, God shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death or mourning or crying or pain. Thank you, Jesus. Please don't say these things at my funeral. What's in that coffin is just the shell of Randy. No, no. What's in that coffin is a body that was fearfully and wonderfully made when God knit me in my mother's womb. What's in that coffin is an image bearer of the Almighty. What's in that coffin is the body Jesus baptized into his own body to make me a part of him. What's in that coffin is the body that ate communion that represented the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's in that coffin is the body that when the last trumpet will sound, that body will burst from the grave glorified and raised with the Lord and his people forever. My body is God's creation, an essential part of my identity as a human being. It is not a shell. It is God's gift. And one day I'll get it back, alive, restored, perfected to be like the resurrected body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, church family, please start my funeral with Jesus End it with Jesus and make it about Jesus at every point in between. I want you to come to my funeral so that you will hear good news. And it's this. In view of the reality of my mortality, neither death nor life nor angels above or demons below or anything else in all of creation can separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus our Lord. For he is the resurrection and the life. Amen? I'm done.